Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast series here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to the Reverend Alice Connor about her book, How to Human, an Incomplete Manual for Living in a Messed Up World. Welcome to the show, Alice. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be back. I'm excited you're back, too. I think you're my first repeat guest, so I don't Yay. know if there's a prize for that, but I'll mail you one <laughs> if there is. Uh, <laughs> I wonder, to start, if you could please tell us about yourself. Yeah, I've uh, I've been doing campus ministry uh, at University of Cincinnati for 12 years, uh, which makes me very old in uh, campus ministry <laughs> circles. Um I am a massive board game enthusiast. I'm actually kind of uh, sad about podcasts not having visuals associated because I would love to just tip the camera angle slightly to the left so you could see our board game collection that's right here. Um, I'm sitting actually at uh, this brand new custom gaming table <laughs> in, in, the, in the Edge House, which is our campus ministry. It's like a giant dining table where you lift the top off and there's like this fancy felt table underneath. Oh my gosh. That, that's really all you need to know about me is I'm super excited about that kind of stuff. <laughs> but I could tell you more if you want. What else should I say? Well, I'll, um, I'll, that is super exciting. Um, I do like board games. Do you have a favorite? I well, yes. Sorry, I do have a favorite. I'm I'm thinking through the, the possibilities here. Like I play Agricola all the time. It's a it's a farming game, which doesn't sound very exciting, uh, but it is. There's just like 17 different things you have to pay attention to all at once, um, and like your people can starve, which is really sad. Uh, so I really, I really, really love that game. Um, but uh, yesterday I was reminded of my love for a game called Castles of Mad King Ludwig, uh, where you build a ridiculously shaped castle, basically, uh, and get points for it. It's it's quite delightful. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know about you, Christina. Um, I'm finding that I have to do a lot of things in pandemic to uh, keep my spirits up. Um I feel like there's, I have a lot of anxiety. Maybe, maybe the listeners do as well about like what the future is going to hold. And, um, I don't know, like (laughs) some of my students have been saying not, not exactly this, but sort of what's the point of what I'm doing? Like, what's the point of my degree that I've chosen? What's, you know, what's the point of being on campus? Cause some of them are still here as opposed to doing it from home. Um, we have a student who's a classics major, I think is, is what he's doing. So like he knows Greek and Latin and Hebrew and all that and, and studies the ancient manuscripts. And it's very, like, he's super smart and it's really interesting to talk to him, but like his degree is about academia and a lot of colleges are like, we're not hiring anybody <laughs> like for the foreseeable future. Uh, and so there's sort of a, a lot of fear, um, anxiety in the system and so it, maybe it's, it's kind of goofy and not helpful for me to start with board games, but um, they bring me joy in a time that feels not joyful, if that makes sense. It does. I love board games, too. So I, I love your suggestions. I'm going to have to mm. look them up. I, uh, 
What are your faves? So my fave is a, a bizarre version of Sorry that my dad and I made up when I was little. So you have to play both opposite corners at the same time against one opponent. So sorry, the sorry board is set up for four people to be able to play, but you can only play against another person and you can't play one half of the board. You have to play two corners against your opponent who's playing two corners and you you play them all simultaneously. Like every time, oh, and then the other thing is instead of drawing one card at a time, you have four cards in your hand and oh, then you draw it. one at a time. Oh my gosh. And so all you can be playing both your corners. You can only make move one person at, you know, one peg at a time, but you can do mm-hmm. either of your corners. And so, yeah. Um, Christina, I think uh, we should make a last minute change to your podcast. And I think it should just be us talking about board games. Um, <laughs> I think because I, I literally, think an episode about that would be great. <laughs> so I literally just, um, I was just watching, a board game podcast or board game, uh, a YouTube thing where he was talking about different ways to play chess. And one of them was, uh, sort of an asymmetric chess where like one person has, I think it's like King, Queen and Knight maybe. And the other person has all the pawns or something. I was like, what? Uh, <laughs> and then there was another one where you play simultaneously where it's just like regular chess, but each person chooses what move they're going to make. And then you do it at the same time. And then you have to make, future. I was like, Oh, I love this, like the creativity of that. And like the, it's not just like, oh, that's so creative. Like, eh, it's, it's nice. But it's like, it's like taking what you have and doing something more interesting with it, right? Like, like, le- like legitimately, what was up with suddenly everyone in the world making sourdough bread like three months ago? <laughs> it was like everywhere. There were TikToks. It was on Snapchat. It was like, why is everyone suddenly making sourdough and it's because we didn't have anywhere to go you know it's like take what you have and do something with it (laughs) yeah it just makes me so happy I think with making the bread you can see change throughout the day like you start with your starter and then the bread goes through all these phases and we're taping during the pandemic and it's really difficult to differentiate week from week or season from season when so many of the markers that we rely on mm-hmm. to tell us like, Oh, it's graduation. Time has no meaning. Yeah, yeah. No, we're not having graduations. It's wedding season. No one's having a wedding. Everything's over zoom. It's like I'm zooming this or that. And it's the same thing. Wear a cute shirt and your pajama bottoms. Like it doesn't matter what zoom meeting is. So I think the thing with sourdough bread is you can actually, during the course of making it, you can see changes and you can cycle all the way through from like flour and starter gunk, to bread coming out of the oven in a way we can't with anything. Yes, and like yes, your students yes. are saying, like, if I finish my degree, then what? Like the, the cycle has been halted. Yeah. And we don't know what comes next. And I think maybe that's part of the joy of board games right now. There's, you know, you set it up, you play the thing, whatever happens, happens, and you get to the end and there's a there's a cycling through yes. of an experience in a way that we're pretty much denied or we have to reinvent like I love the guy who reinvented chess because I feel him like I don't know who his chess partner is he's quarantined with but the only person I had to play chess with growing up was my dad and it turned out that we thought incredibly similarly so chess between me and my dad was similar to watching a no hitter in baseball it was hours of nothing happening that's that's like every time I play chess yes (laughs) 
we had to give up on it. I think if it had occurred to us to do to chess what we did to sorry, we right. could have really we could have really had some chess. So I That's... love that people are like, okay, my chess partner and I have reached the end. So now they right. have these pieces, I have these pieces. You know, yes. you know, because we're just um we're figuring out how to human mm-hmm. in all kinds of new ways, mm-hmm, which is mm-hmm. a segue to the book that you yep, wrote. Perfect. That was a perfect segue. Good work. <laughs> so you wrote a book called How to Human, an incomplete manual for living in a messed up world. And what led you to want to write this or think you were the person for it? Yeah, I, well, I, I don't know if I'm the person for it, <laughs> uh, but I did write it. Um, yeah, the, so the Edge House campus ministry that I've, I've served for a million years now, it seems like, um, and like half of that million has been during pandemic. Uh, we have sort of over the years developed, uh, you, you could call it like a language, I guess, uh, or a set of wisdom sayings maybe, um, which on the surface maybe don't sound that wise. Um, things, things like um, sucking at something is the first step to being sort of good at something. <laughs> Uh, like that isn't quite trippingly roll off the tongue, but like the reminder that the first time you do something, you're not going to be good at it. That doesn't mean you shouldn't keep doing it. Uh, it doesn't mean that you won't eventually be good at it or that you won't eventually love it even more. Just, of course you're bad at the first time. Everybody is. Babies can't hold their own heads up when they're born because they've never had to. (laughs) Um, or, or like, it's okay to feel your feelings, which, (laughs) Uh, my students hate when I say it to them and then I in turn hate it when they say it back to me. <laughs> These feelings are gross. Um, or or uh, the one that, that comes up really frequently as we're sort of figuring out, as, as you say, as the title says, how to human, like figuring out how to live in this world um, is the sort of idea of events or things or people not being good or bad they just are um, like we, I think certainly in America, but maybe just as a human trait, we look at things that happen and we're like, well, that's bad. That's good. Like, well, I, it may or may, maybe it is. I mean, I think, I think there are some things you could name for that. Um, you know, a, a mudslide is definitely bad, but on the other hand, like, and I'm, and I'm saying that because you brought that up, Christina, um, what's bad about that is the loss of life. Um, the, the loss of property, the, the struggle that comes with that, right? Um, but it's, it, it is a natural phenomenon, and as such, it just happens, if that makes sense. Uh, and I, and I, I want to be clear that I hope that doesn't sound like I'm being, um, you know, insensitive to, to you know, pa- the pain that anybody might experience, right? Like, is the pandemic neither good nor bad? It simply is. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's just a, it's a virus, it just exists. What it does is bad, right? Um, but also there's so much creativity coming out of, of this time and so much sort of reconnection with our neighbors and with what's important to us. Um, and, and both of those things are, as it were, like results of the thing, but the thing itself is neither good nor bad. Anyway, so we can talk about that more if you want to, but my, my point there is, um, that I came to writing this book because there were all these sort of, I would say they're wisdom sayings, I guess, um, that we've sort of developed as a community over time. 
And it struck me that that a lot of them were were helpful not just to us, like specifically to college students, or to or or even more specifically just to the people in this community, but that they might be helpful for for other people. Um, so yeah, I. I originally pitched it as a, a sort of a biography of our campus ministry. And my editor was like, that's no, nobody's going to want to read a biography of your campus ministry. I was like, really? Uh, so then we kind of expanded it to this um, and, and sort of sharing these, these ideas, which, which ultimately are about sort of curiosity, essentially. Like that's, that's like the, the grounding feature of our community is being curious about ourselves, being curious about other people's stories, being curious about what's going on around us and trying not to judge any of that. I can see why the editor reframed it. Cause if it was a yeah. biography of the campus ministry, your audience would be other ministers. And instead you used your, uh, experience there at Edge House and what you've done with it as a laboratory of ideas and openness. And the book reflects about 13 different themes or sayings that you all have field tested there in the lab at Edge House. When we say this to people, how do they engage with it? How do they feel? Where does that take us in an open dialogue with each other? So if you you say to them, chapter 12 is called Ambiguity is Neither Good Nor Bad. So if you say that your students there at, at Edge House, if you say ambiguity is neither good nor bad, <laughs> what is the lab experience of having them there and saying that to them? And how do you all work your way through that idea, the acceptance of it, the the sense of it? And and it sounds like now you're, you're test, retesting these ideas on the pandemic, the virus itself has no malintent. The virus itself is and has always been a virus for as long as it has existed. Origin dates seem to be still argued among countries, but uh, possibly sometime last December. And it didn't become a virus to be bad. It is a virus and it is doing what viruses do. And we as humans are now coming together as humans to give responses that we give when we see others harmed by something. But the virus is just being a virus. And I think your point about the mudslide and um, and for listeners, I've my county has been through three disasters in three years, which is a, is a mudslide. Um, the mud was sliding because of a bunch of natural phenomenons, including gravity, too much water, lots of loose dirt. Uh, it wasn't there was no malintent of the mud, the gravity, or the water, but the effect of it upon human life and on my county that's still recovering is profound. And on the, those of us who've been through it, um, we're still um, in stages of understanding what it was and how our own recovery is going. Um, and, and and I think that's kind of relates to your students, to the book, to the pandemic, is we don't just get one thing at a time. It's not for most people that the pandemic has stopped their life, but the pandemic has happened in addition to what else was going on in their life. So the pandemic has bear all of these iniquities, um, all of these um, concerns, and other people's whose lives were zipping along. You have these students who found a major that they were thrilled about. They they were developing their skills. They were really f- headed towards a future where they thought they would 
aim for a particular job and now life is not life as they knew it and they're not sure right. exactly what exactly. that means yeah. right the uncertainty yeah yeah, yeah. And, and so in in philosophical circles in in uh, spiritual circles we will often call call those places of uncertainty li- excuse me uncertainty liminal spaces um which maybe if you're listening to this in academia you're sick of that term i don't know but uh i love it i love that word so much um it's it's the space between things when you're not fully in one space or another um but you are also sort of still in both um we talk here about how the experience of just being in college is a liminal space both in terms of like the learning, but also just like you're, you're in a space between essentially being a child and being an adult. Like you are technically an adult here in college. Uh, but like, how the hell do you do that? <laughs> how do you, how do you function? Um, and, and the recognition that it doesn't just, it's not like you, you immediately flip a switch from one thing to another. There's this, this transitional space. Um, and that on, on the, like, let me put it this way. So that, that ambiguity, neither good nor bad. Um, again, I wish I had a, a visual here, but uh, imagine me holding both of my hands next to each other, but not on top. Maybe you can do that yourself. Like you're offering your hands out like a bowl to get more food or something. Um, one of those is sort of good things and one of those is bad things and that they exist simultaneously. Um, when, when good things, however you would interpret that, when good things happen to you or around you, it doesn't cancel out whatever pain you might be experiencing the pain's still there. The grief might still be there. Um, and, and whatever, whatever, however you would understand that bad things happen when you're grieving, when you're miserable, that doesn't mean there's also not good things happening there. And, and it's not necessarily an equal balance either. It's just, they, they exist simultaneously, but our brains tend to try to want to process that and like come to one or the other, <laughs> you know, I, I shouldn't be so sad. Cause like, nobody in my family has COVID. So everything's, it's, it's all, it's all fine. And we'll get through that. We will get through this eventually, right? That's the sort of hopeful thinking, which we will. But in the meantime, lots of people are dying. Lots of people are sick. Lots of people are afraid, right? Or just to lean into everything is horrible. Well, yes, lots of things are horrible. That is real and true. And we need to, to say that and to name it. But it's also not the only truth. Also, there are good and beautiful things to delight in, um, which is sort of that ambiguity space. Um, and also kind of just to circle back, it's kind of, to me, practicing curiosity is one of the ways that I can kind of open up a little bit to that, that sense of being in a liminal space, um, that I don't, I don't have to be scared of it. I might still be scared of it. Like it doesn't, when I, when I offer any of these things, I want to be clear, this, none of this solves any of the problems, right? It doesn't, none of this is magic bullet kind of stuff. Um, but it can help put us on whatever the next good step is for us. So if I'm curious about whatever the, the thing is that's happening within me, wow, I seem really anxious. I wonder what that is. What's that about? Well, obviously pandemic, obviously systemic racism, etc but also my own sense of not being in control. <laughs> my sense of, of uh, there's a level of which my sense of failure, like I should be able to fix this. I should be able to make other people happier uh, or whatever. Um, my sense of 
fear of what might happen to my family or to my friends, my sense of what's going to happen to this country after election day uh, or, or whatever. Um, and that curiosity about what's going on is hard. <laughs> um, we talk about it as a practice here at the edge house. Like if you practice violin or you practice your tennis backhand or something, I don't, I'm not a sports person. Uh, but, but like, those are things that you practice them regularly and it makes it easier. The practicing itself is still hard, but it makes the thing easier. So the more I practice being curious about what's going on inside me, what's going on in the world around me, the more I'm able to see it more clearly. Does that make sense? It does. Um, in chapter five, which is called, if it's not okay, it's not the end. You, you touch on some of these things, the liminal space and where you are right now is where you are right now. It's, it's not necessarily where you're going to end up or how things will stay. Um, and you, you talk about one of the things that you offer in your uh, lab of learning about human beings, which is uh, Edge House. You say, be present in your life right now rather than how you think it ought to be. Yeah. Does that help us with the understanding that it's not okay right now, but this is mm -hmm. not the end? Mm-hmm. I think so. Uh, well, I don't know if it helps you. <laughs> it helps me. Uh, I, if anybody on the, who's listening to this is familiar with the, the Enneagram system, uh, personality tool. Um, I'm obsessed with it. I, uh, I, I function from a, the one space, which is sort of about perfectionism. And one of the things that, that we set in that space try to work on is what they call holy perfection, which doesn't mean everything is exactly as it should be. It doesn't mean everything is sort of mathematically correct. Um, holy perfection is about clear sight, not what do I want things to be, which isn't necessarily bad, but sort of not conflating what I want things to be with the way things are. You know, I, I want addicts the world over to see the pain that they're experiencing, that they're covering up with whatever they're addicted to and, and to forgive themselves and to do the work and, and whatever. Right. Like I, I want that to be the case, but that isn't the case. <laughs> a lot of people are, but a lot of people aren't right. I, I want human beings in the United States of America to see clearly their um, implicit bias and, white supremacy and release it. And <laughs> just like, literally, literally, I just want people to let go, like myself included, just, just drop it, stop doing this. But that's not the way it is. What actually is the case? Right. Um, and what, what is really interesting, like you might think that sort of taking a, a an unforgiving look at yourself, you know, your, your own history, how you interact with the world or, or taking that, look at the world might be super depressing. Um, but I think that's why we tend to avoid it is because we think it's going to be depressing. A lot of it is, but so much of it isn't. I mean, and this is such a, this is such a ridiculous thing for me to be excited about, but I'm just, I'm going to share it because it was such good news to me. Apparently there is significant incontrovertible evidence that the great barrier reef 
is regenerating itself. Now, who cares? It's a coral reef. We should care. It's huge. <sighs> that thing has been damaged by human beings for so long, by the, the you know, tourism and boats and whatever. And it is sort of, as the rainforest in, in uh, South America is the lungs of the world, the barrier reef is the lungs of the ocean. <laughs> and that it is regenerating itself is a sign of new life, not just for right that, that whole area, but the whole world. When we can look at the world and see that in addition to the pandemic, that frees us up to actually say, oh, okay, well then what can I do? What, what am I, how am I able to respond to the things around me? Um, it, it, it allows for freedom within us, freedom of, freedom of choice, but like freedom of taking our next step. Um, so yeah. <laughs> well, and that leads to one of the things in the book that really leapt out at me, which is that you write three words all together as one word. And the three words that you write together as one word are success and failure. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in the book, success and failure are tied together on purpose. And the regeneration of the Great Barrier Reef seems to um, beautifully um, encapsulate that idea that if we looked at what had happened to the Great Barrier Reef as absolute failure on the part of human beings, on on everything, um, we would not have continued to study it, to question, to be curious, is there anything that could be done uh, is is there any other reef that can take over for this one? What are the possibilities and what have we learned from what we yeah. see here? So Exactly. But it, putting success and failure together as one word, that they're always going to be tied together, that the curiosity of one will keep us open to the other and the possibility of the other will temper how we, how we respond. There's no absolute success and there's no sort of, um, permanent failure. You you talk about in the book that humans are people in process. Um, life is a thing in process. And during all those processes, um, if we look at success and failure as tied together as one big thing, we might have that freedom inside ourselves then to really look at ourselves, to look at the world around us, and to be in this moment. Because if this moment is not defined as just failure or just success. Many people are as terrified of success as they nice. are of failure. <laughs> True fact. <laughs> um, so they look at it as just the big tangled uh, thing that um, it, it takes a lot of the pressure off. Oh, success and failure yeah. are always going to go together. Yeah. 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 Maybe well, I can right, look and, at myself. Exactly. Exactly. Again, it's, it's that sense of freedom. Like even being successful then kind of gives you a, a particular script, right? Like, I'm not going to lie, like I, my first book, Fierce, um, I'm not a best-selling author, but <laughs> that book uh, has done very well for, for me and for, for the publisher. And so they asked me to write a second book. So I wrote How to Human. How to Human has not done as well um, for various reasons that are kind of boring. Um, <laughs> you know, publishing is a sort of fascinating and also kind of dull industry. So it's, it's a thing that it happens. And so I was kind of riding high off of, off of, fierce and being like, yeah, I did the thing and people are reading it and yeah, I'm awesome. Uh, and then I write this one, which I 
arguably almost put more heart and soul into. Um, and it's not as successful. I mean, people are reading it. I want to be clear about that. But like the numbers aren't the same, right? And so I could easily dive into, well, I suck and everything I do is a failure because I didn't go up to the next level of sales or whatever, you know? Um, it's, it's so easy just to sit in one place or another rather than sitting in the middle and going, yep, both of these things are true. All of these things are true. Um, and I guess that's, that's kind of what I'm trying to say about that clear sight. Um, it's also sort of in the, the consider the lilies chapter, um, sort of just about like literally like stop the constant cycling of your brain. What's next? When am I going to do, how am I fixing this? All that kind of stuff. And just look at what is right. And what is may include some amazing success and it may include some horrible failure. And not, again, neither of those things is good or bad. They just are. What do we take away from it? What is, what is the process of learning? Uh, that sort of thing. Um, you know, you fail, you fail a test in college. Okay. So let's look at why you failed. Uh, did you think that you knew all the stuff and just didn't bother to study? Okay. So one of the things you could learn is I probably ought to remind myself of the stuff before I go into the test. Did you get drunk the night before and go in with a hangover? Okay. You know, getting drunk is neither here nor there. Maybe the timing was poor. Uh, you know, did, did you study really hard and you just didn't know the material the way you thought you did? Okay. So what can you learn from that? You need to go talk to somebody else about this. Maybe you need to be in a different major. I don't know. The question is not just sitting in the misery, but noticing what it is telling you. Um, and again, I think going like we talk about like, you know, it's okay to feel your feelings. Like so much of that, the anxiety that's in the system right now about all kinds of stuff. I think it's important again, to look at that clearly. What are you anxious about? Doesn't take it away. Doesn't fix it for you. But sometimes just being able to name it can help release a little bit of it. You know, like a, like a release valve takes a little bit of the pressure off. Oh, right. Yeah. There's a pandemic and everyone's upset. Okay. <laughs> um, or, or whatever. D- um, does that make sense? It does. And it's, it's beautiful that you shared about the uh, reception of the book that, um, you know, it might not have been, sounds like it wasn't the numbers that the press hoped for. And it, it's interesting to consider people's expectations. You know, the book says an incomplete manual for living in a messed up world. And then on the cover art, it says being human is hard. This book is here to help. A lot of how-to books are sold on the basis that they're not here to help. They're here to fix. Right. They yes. are the complete manual. They will have you know, checklists at the back and worksheets. They will have a system. A system, a system is very important to offer people in your self-help book. And this book is really, as I look at you talk and I'm looking at my notes, truly right above the microphone is success and failure written as one word. And I would invite listeners to do that and then to wonder how they can spend time sitting in the and. Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. book to me is sitting in the and. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you call chapter 13, everything's awkward, lean into it. In this. This book is really uh, about 
being with your difficulties, being with your messy human self, being gentle with your messy human self, um, and taking a kind of a long view. We keep saying over and over, learning is a process. Being a human is a process. A life is a process. And I think when someone's in a struggle, they either find that really reassuring or they find it kind of angering, like, no, I want one of those books that gives me the checklist. I want Rope and Alice to give me the checklist. I've come to you with the problem. Tell me the three things to do, um, and I will go do them, and the problem will will go away because Reverend Alice said so. Maybe she'll even give me a blessing. You know, Christina, and, I want and- that too. Like I, <laughs> I think that's why I wrote the book that way. I desperately want somebody to tell me, here's the five things to do to fix this. Like that's that's the space I live in is fixing things. But most things aren't fixable. It's like my, my, I think you're exactly right. Like that's kind of my point in so much of this book is it's, it's, it's not a question of fixing things. That's the wrong question. You know, it's, it's more of a question of, of, I, I want to be clear that I'm not saying that we should just accept whatever crappy situation we're in and that we'll never get out of it. Right. Like I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying we can't change things, but the idea that something is fixable seems to suggest that there is some sort of finished product or a perfect way or a right way, a correct way that human beings are supposed to be uh, or that a situation is supposed to be. And it it just isn't. There's, there's always multiple right answers, you know? Um, And so I, I absolutely think that I wrote this book because that's how I look at the world. Like my lens is I can fix this, you know, and it's just not true. And you you talk about that pretty openly in the book, especially in chapter nine. I felt in a way that you were talking to yourself. So maybe maybe you were writing that for yourself because chapter nine is called You're Involved, Not in Control. And it was it was very honestly written, but I wondered if it was um really because you are the director of Edge House, because you do meet so many students, because people open up to you about problems big and small across the spectrum. Um, and when you are with them, when they are speaking with you, they've invited you in as a listener and in that way you are involved, but they, they can't ask you to be in control. And even if they do, you can't accept that job title. You can't be in control. Um, and I think that idea you're involved, but not in control does empower us. If a situation is dangerous or unhealthy or doesn't make us happy or, your example before about failing a test, maybe it's not the right subject for you. Um, that's certainly a possibility. It doesn't mean quit what you're doing and do something else, but consider where would you feel like you were thriving mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because you, you are involved. You're not in control of the outcome. And then maybe you failed a test because of the professor, frankly, if the questions weren't clear, um, it, you know, and I've been in the, the, that side of it being the professor, I, I wouldn't say that I've had the experience where everybody failed, but I have had, a, when I look at tests all together and I think, you know, the answers overwhelmingly for, you know, essay question C are really different than what I was expecting. So I think I'm going to go back and read all of them together as a group and see what they were telling me because clearly what I was asking <laughs> is not what they're answering. And so I would regrade it because it was a, if we're going to use words like fail, it was a fail on the wording of the essay. Um, 
And so there's a lot of reasons why things don't turn out for the person, the people involved the way they want, because control is not really the goal here. It's about being involved in your own life. Right. It is. It, I mean, I, it, that is so important to me. I've, I literally have it tattooed on my arm. Uh, and I, I have gestured to it in a number of conversations. <laughs> my students now know when I gesture to my forearm, they know what that means. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think, I think we live in a society that suggests at least, or, or heavily implies that we can be in control of all kinds of stuff. We can be in control of our finances or our future, our children, our parents. Um, it's, it's interesting to me how many students I've talked to who are talking about how talking about voting this time around and, and sort of their sense of like, uh, I mean, in particular, they were the students I was thinking of were talking about Biden and saying like, he just, he's not, he's not exciting to me. He's not, he's not where I want him to be. And I, I just don't really want to vote for him. I'm like, I hear you. Like he's not super excited to me either. But on the other hand, you know, politics and voting are not about finding a perfect candidate. It's about sort of nudging the system one direction or another, trying to, trying to create space for the things that are important to us as a society. Um, so you, you're not going to get a perfect person because there aren't any, <laughs> there just aren't. Um, you, you're only, what is, what is the line? I think I have it in the book about, um, it's hard to love people who hurt and betray you, but that's the only kind of people there are. (laughs) And again, on the one level that could be really sort of heavy and depressing. Like, Oh God, there's only people who are going to hurt and depress me. On the other hand, like, right. That's just who we are. We mess up all the time. And so we love each other anyway. (laughs) And how beautiful that is. Um, Because we're not in control of people's behavior. We're not in control of our own even most of the time. Um, But we can make certain decisions. We we, we have agency, as they say. Um, I can take a particular step one direction or the other. So what is the step I'm choosing to take? And you... You talk quite a bit in the book about the importance of asking for what you need. And I really appreciate that chapter because you also explain what isn't asking for what you need. You you very kindly and honestly talk about how a lot of learned behaviors to ask for what you need are actually a series of manipulations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so most people feel it's either rude or it's inappropriate for their gender or it's fill in the blank reason why that it's, you should not actually be direct about saying what you need or saying what you want. It should be rolled into this whole package of layers of conversation that your, your experience is that people will have better communication if they simply say what they need And you also do a lovely unpacking of why the word no is a good and beautiful word. So can you talk about what it really is to ask for what you want or need and why no is a great answer? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, asking for what you need, I I, I do note in the book that um, asking for what you need and saying the thing are two separate chapters, but there's a lot of overlap there (laughs) Uh, because there's then sort of this question of like, well, what is it that I need? Now I have to sort of identify that within myself. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, so, so asking for what you need involves, so again, being able to name what it is, I need a ride to the doctor on this particular day. Um, I need to feel more secure or more loved. It could be, I need dinner cause I'm hungry. Um, I don't necessarily need, you know, bouffe bourguignon or something like that. I need a sandwich or whatever, <laughs> like what's available to me. Um, being able to name the thing that you need um, and to be vulnerable about asking for it. Um, it occurs to me, I don't think I put this in the book, but it occurs to me, there's probably times you're just asking yourself for what you need. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know how many of your listeners end up, you know, doom scrolling through whatever for hours and then sort of like, what do I actually need right now? Oh, I know what I need to go to bed <laughs> or eat my dinner or whatever. I need to stop doom scrolling and Twitter or whatever the thing is. Um, and the recognition that it does take a lot of vulnerability to ask for what you need, even if it's something simple, like, Hey, I'm so sorry. I'm so tired. Can you just make me a sandwich? That's good. Like that is a huge moment to be able to ask for that. Even if it seems like something small and recognize that the answer might be no for whatever you're asking for. Um, you know, I, I need a ride to the doctor on next Tuesday. Can you take me? The answer may be, Oh my gosh, I would love to. I can't because I have a staff meeting or whatever. Um, and to recognize that that no doesn't necessarily mean that you were bad in asking. <laughs> you still need to get to the doctor, right? Uh, or to say to your partner, like, I've noticed that I'm, I'm not really feeling very secure right now. Could we go cuddle on the couch or whatever? Um, hopefully your partner says yes. Or your partner may have to say, I really can't right now. I've got to go to the bathroom <laughs> or I'm in the middle of something really important right now. Can we do that in half an hour or whatever? Or maybe ideally they turn around and say, absolutely. Yes, let's do that. I'll drop everything for this. The no doesn't mean that your question was wrong. And it doesn't mean that you are bad. This goes into questions of like shame and guilt. Um, but that's not what's happening there. What's happening is the particular thing you asked for is not available, perhaps from that person. So maybe you got to ask somebody else uh, or maybe you examine the question and go, Oh, I needed to ask that more clearly. Or maybe I don't need this particular thing. Maybe I need this other thing. That sounds very vague. Let me put it this way. And I don't know if this is what you're referring to, Christina. When I was in high school, I was completely obsessed with this guy named Philip just for years. It's my first love. I desperately wanted him to be my boyfriend. And I did that typical thing that teenagers do. I prayed to God that God would make him my boyfriend. Now, in retrospect, that's super cringe. Like, God does not make people do things. <laughs> that's weird. Um, but also in retrospect, what I was asking for, what I really wanted, I certainly wanted Philip in particular, but in general, I wanted to be loved. I wanted another person who wasn't my family, who wasn't contractually obligated to love me, to look at me and want me around. And I did eventually get that. I fell in love with my husband, Leighton, and we've been married for over 20 years. Hooray. Um, what I needed, and also what I wanted in that moment, was someone to love me. Um, and yeah, sometimes you don't know <laughs> what it is you need or what it is you want until after the fact. Um, 
And that's not, again, I feel like I'm, I'm a broken record here. That's not bad either. <laughs> uh, that's just more information to look back and go, oh, that relationship I was in was really toxic. I thought I was getting what I needed and what I wanted, but I really wasn't. And that doesn't mean it was a failure, right? That That's, again, it's more information. Like that's okay. Well, we were not good for each other. And I guess it's a good thing we're not together anymore. It's also a good thing that I've learned that about us, that I can enter into a different relationship knowing that, seeing that. But again, all this, as you say, there's no checklist. It's not, I want a checklist. Holy cow, do I want a checklist to fix things? But that's not how it works. It's just, you know, putting one foot in front of the other and and examining your footprints. Where have I come from and and kind of what's in front of me? What are my options? Um, Being honest. Yeah. And you say that on page 155, you say we Mm. make the path just by walking it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that's the, this is the book to carry on the walk. Mm. What a lovely thing to say. Thank you. That's not to be weird about my own book, but like, that's legitimately why I wrote it was to sort of a a field guide, sort of a tour guide, but not one that's going to tell you turn left here. But hey, look at the map and see what your options are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I felt that that you give us you do give us tools. You uh, tell us to be gentle with ourselves. You tell us to take off our masks and look at ourselves and seek people to be around who will be with us when we're unmasked and who will be unmasked when they're with us. You you tell us what ifs are important. You tell us the success and failure are always going to be tied together. So don't, don't try to sit and just one or the other. Don't define yourself as that person who always messes up and don't define yourself as that person who always gets it right. Because you have to, as you had us do in the beginning, when you started talking, you asked us to hold our hands out, like we were holding a bowl, our hands close together and to um, imagine that, that that is the space for ourselves. The, the contradictions right next to each other, um, the opposites right next to each other, and not to think of them as good and bad, but does this serve me? Can I take my next step if I'm still carrying this thing? Um, and if I do, am I thwarting somebody else? You know, I think when we talk a bit about um, the isms, the systemic isms, the racism, the sexism, all of it, um, you know, if I if I take this step and I continue as I am right now, will I be part of one of those isms? And so I think, you know, this is the book to carry as, as you're taking the steps. Um, for me as a person, books that are written by people who've never met me and spent zero time with me. And I, other than a very few people in my county, um, know anybody who else who got the complete trifecta of fire, mudslide, and COVID. Um, I would be hesitant for someone to come in and sort of give me a checklist like, well, here's where you went wrong and here's here's what to do next. Um, because it was that easy. It was that easy the whole time. Someone who doesn't know me and hasn't walked this, it was that easy. Um, and why didn't I get the checklist before? Um, how do human, in a way, is the ability to know that someone's walking beside us, whether we can see them or not, that, that this kind of experience has been experienced before. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Did you say that I was, <laughs> I'm also a sci-fi nerd. I was thinking about a, a line from uh, the recent Battlestar Galactica reboot where they say multiple times, all of this has happened before and all this will happen again. And again, you could think of that as sort of, ugh, all this is going to happen again. But no, it's happened before. Like human beings have been doing these same kinds of things to and for each other forever. Um, and so how are you going to respond to that? You, you have a choice. And again, that feels to me like such freedom. There's, there's not one right answer. There's lots of right answers. Um, and I think yeah, that's actually, I mean, that's actually why I love so many of the, the board games I love because there's, there's a lot of choices. Um, I'm, I'm right now I'm thinking of seven wonders for anybody who happens to play that as a card game. Um, but there's, there's so many ways to accumulate points and everybody at the table is going to play a little differently. Um, and there is no wrong way to do that. <laughs> and I think that like literally it's a, it's a fun game in and of itself, but like what, one of the things that's one of the things that game teaches me is that sort of reminder that there's not a right way to do this. It's just my way. The book keeps inviting us to have true curiosity. And I think board games are a good metaphor for that. Um, I suppose there are some people who, who are really into strategy and, and the sense that if they use the strategy, um, they will win. But one of the, it's not a board game, but a game or sport perhaps that I really enjoy is bowling because I do not understand any of the technique at all. So I am just as likely, and this is true, this is not like for people's amusement, I am just as likely to throw it forward towards the pins as I am behind me. <laughs> and I don't really, because my brain doesn't time the release the way you would expect it to. So people just have to sort of, you know, make a zone of safety around me because we really don't know what I'm going to do. And then it's just this great curiosity as it's like making its way down the thing. Will it go all the way down? Did I throw it hard enough? Is it going to knock anything down? And I had this experience in college where I went bowling with, um, well, I was brand new, right? So it was a bunch of people in my hallway. Um, we didn't know each other. And I did actually throw it backwards and almost take out my new roommate's new cap. So that was really not good. But on the next one, I threw it forward and I knocked everything down, right? That's the strike, I guess. And I was so surprised and curious that I had never expected that would happen. So I'm jumping up and down and truly like the bowling alley started clapping. It was like a bad movie scene. And my roommate was like, well, I will never go bowling with you again, which I thought was because I actually almost hit her in the kneecaps. But it was because when everybody started clapping it called attention to us and that was not like that was not okay for her she she was really mortified by that so but i have deliberately since then not actually taken any bowling lessons or learned how because i want to stay in the curiosity i don't want to develop any filter technique i don't want to hurt anybody but i love that there are things that i truly have no control so I just experience it and I stay in the curiosity. I wish I could say I applied my bad bowling to everything in my life. <laughs> well, I wonder what's going to happen today. I wonder what's going to happen. And I'm normal or I pretend to be or whatever. My mask is that I'm normal. Um, and so I have a certain number of expectations of different things during during my day 
or uh, in, in my career or in my work. And, you know, I'm, I'm human, so I'll get, I'll get frustrated. I'll view things as a failure. Um, but when I can go back to curiosity, um, that helps. And when I can't, to admit that I need help from someone else. So in the few minutes we have left, can you talk about what it is to give and receive help? If we're not in control, if we are a participant, if we don't have all the answers, if we're just walking alongside each other for a portion of each other's path, what is help then? Well, I immediately thought of an experience I had a number of years ago uh, on a a pilgrimage to New York City. Um, I had taken some students uh, to, to work on uh, Hurricane Sandy relief at the time. And uh, so we'd, we'd been on uh, Staten Island for the, the week to do that. Uh, it had gotten increasingly significantly colder during the week to the point that we actually had a blizzard at the end of the week, which was, I was like, what is happening? Um, so after this, this long week that was good, but if anybody's been on trips like this, you also know it could be stressful uh, and, and, you know, personalities start kind of grading on each other. Uh, so at the end of the week, we did an overnight at um, St. John the Divine Church in New York City, which is this massive Gothic cathedral. It's gorgeous. Uh, so we did an overnight there, and um, some of the, the stress feelings came out in some of the students. Some of it got directed at me. Um, I did what I could to kind of respond to that well. I don't know that I did, but uh, so just, it, was, it was deeply stressful. Um, and during the sort of evening worship thing. Uh, they had a bunch of different stations. There was one of them was a labyrinth and there was a music thing. I, I don't remember all the things. I decided to walk the labyrinth. Uh, and I, I love labyrinth walking is something I don't do often enough, but I was, I was walking it and I was walking it very slowly. Uh, I typically will stop at each turn of the labyrinth, um, to pause and breathe a few times and then continue on. And I stopped at one of them and I just started sobbing. And it, I wasn't loud, but I was very much crying. Uh, it was the stress of the, the stress of the week and the sort of feeling like I had failed because some people were upset with me. Um, and one of my students who was on the, the pilgrimage with us was also walking the labyrinth. And what's fascinating about the way labyrinths work is you can find yourself in totally different sections of it but walking next to somebody like you're one of you has been on there forever. And the other person just came on and, and you're walking towards each other. Or you're walking next to each other. Like what is happening here? And so she happened to be on a part of the labyrinth farther ahead of me that looped back towards me. And so she just stopped and she didn't, you know, try to make a big production out of it. She just stood next to me at the bend where our two parts of the path connected And I could just hear her next to me breathing slowly. And it seems like such a tiny thing, but in the moment and still, I can can feel that, that she was with me and she could see my pain. Um, She she knew she couldn't take it away from me, but she could see it. And so just her physical presence near me, let me continue to cry. And then to be able to breathe more deeply and to kind of stem that tide and to just let go what that pain was a little bit. I mean, again, these things aren't magic, but that moment, uh, that was her help. Um, and it doesn't mean that we can't, you know, raise money or whatever the thing is, but, but sort of the, the, how do I say this? 
being curious about how we can be with someone rather than sort of being at them, if that makes sense. Um, or, or <laughs> at a seminary professor, he used to say, oh, stop going on and working amongst the people. Because <laughs> it's that sort of the sense of like, I'm working amongst the people and I can leave. How are we actually with each other? Um, I think I think that's kind of the question. And I don't really have a clear answer for that either. I think we all have to kind of work through what that means. Um, and ask the people, like, who is it you're trying to help? Maybe go ask them what they actually need. <laughs> Not just ask for what you need, ask them what they need. You know, they might tell you something totally different than what you were expecting. Um, yeah. How, how are you with the people around you? I love that way of looking at help. I wish we had more time to talk about your book. I, I hope that listeners will um, find it when they're ready or find the chapter that they need or the quote that they need. Um, I'd like to leave with a quote from your mother. Uh, your mother said, good judgment comes from experience. Experience comes from bad judgment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for talking us talking with us today about how we make the path just by walking it and how humans are all a people in process. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. We've been talking to the Reverend Alice Connor about how to human an incomplete manual for living in a messed up world. This is the academic life here on New Books Network. Please join us again.